0: If you guys have your Bible, I would encourage you to open those to John chapter 18 for our scripture reading today. Uh, for our scripture reading today, we'll be in John 18. We'll read verses 1 through 24. It's going to be a little bit longer of a section than normal, so I would just encourage you to hang in there with me today. And today we read the, the story of Jesus' arrest and trial. And what I want you to do is, as we read it's going to be a little bit longer section than normal, but I want you to look at the characters as we read the text together notice the setting of the story so when jesus had spoken these these words he went forth with his, with his disciples over the ravine of the kindred, where there was a garden the garden of gethsemane in which he entered with his disciples now judas also who was betraying him knew the place notice that knew the place for jesus had often met there with his disciples judas then having received the roman cohort and officers When the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What does that tell you? So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he, Egoemi. And Judas, also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Soldiers. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I already told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom have given me, I have lost not one. Now, poor Simon Peter, Simon Peter then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into your sheath. The cup which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? Verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And then he led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the chief priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one, now notice verse 14, if you don't have your text, you can look up here. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. What's the irony there? Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Again, now the slaves and the officers who were standing there having made a charcoal fire. For it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Verse 21, Why then do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them, and they know what I have said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way that you answered the chief priest? And Jesus answered him, If I spoke wrongly, testify of the wrong, and if rightly, why do you strike me? So honest sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Amen, That says the Lord. Pray with me for just a moment, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are here to worship the one true God, the God that bought us in full with the blood of His Son. And Lord, I pray for this morning, um, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, For those that do not know you as Savior, for those that think Jesus is not for them, or for those that are blind to the sin in their life as a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes so we may become more like your Son. And this morning, Lord, I just pray that your humility that we see in John 18 would ripple through the ages of time and would change our lives forever. Lord, I pray that we would emulate our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray your Spirit would work through your Word and change us. We lift this up to you in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, but as I was unpacking John chapter 18, there was this word that came into my mind of humility, because today we see the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ in the midst of his arrest and trials. and I was just taken back. because who is Christ? He's more than just a man, that he is God himself, and he stands there betrayed by Judas, his friend turned foe, and he takes it humbly. And what we find in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 24, we find more than just the story of Jesus' arrest and trial, but we see a principle for our lives today. The the event on display is Jesus' arrest at the hands of Judas, but there is something more. But today, we're probably familiar with this, this story of Jesus' arrest and at least the first trial. But, so the question is not so much, what is the story? But the question I want to answer is, why is the story important? What does this story prove beyond a shadow of a doubt? But before we get too far in, allow me to just ask you a question about life. I just want to make an observation about people people are messy can I get an amen Um, when in life when do you know somebody is we would say for real when do you know somebody walks the walk when do you know somebody is the real deal so to speak as you probably know I love a good documentary and I love the documentaries that are the TMI ones, it means there's too much information. These are the kind of documentaries that I start watching. My wife gets up and leaves the room, okay, uh, because they're just super boring. Okay, and I watch pretty much just three. I watch history, I watch sports, and then I watch science ones from time to time, because I live in Huntsville, after all. Um, but recently, I watched a documentary on professional boxers. Now, watch this documentary, and there's a theme that ran throughout every boxer that they interviewed, that a boxer does not prove, a professional boxer, okay? A boxer does not prove himself in one-round knockouts. They prove themselves when they go into the fire and they endure. Let me ask you a question. How do you prove, as a Christian, that you walk the walk? How does a Christian prove themselves? You prove your claims to the cross when the fires of life approach your doorstep. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. Think about that famous chapter in the hall of faith that we call it. Think about every saint of the Old Testament that is mentioned there. What did every single one of them endure? Great fires of life. You Think about Noah. He built an ark, was made fun of for over a hundred years. You have Abraham waiting for a child. You have Moses who spent 40 years in the desert with a bunch of whiny people. And he didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. Okay, The saints of old proved their faith with endurance. We prove our claims to the cross by Enduring. But I want to add something here There's something a little bit different There's something that I want to talk to you about There's, something, there's a difference in the way that we should endure And the way the world endures Now, I'm not, now I'm, not, I'm not picking on the world I'm not trying to be mean or anything like that Okay. I'm just making a simple observation about life How does the world endure troubles and trials differently Than the way we should endure? Well, One is hope but think about the world, the world often puts their stamp of approval on people that overcome trials and difficulties with self-reliance, with hubris. I mean, we can all think about the athlete that that couldn't win the championship, and then they worked hard, they were self-reliant, they pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, and then they won the championship. Or we think about uh, Kirby Smart finally conquering Nick Saban, amen, the Georgia fans in the room. The world elevates those that are self-reliant, but that is not how we as Christians prove our worth. We prove our worth by enduring with hope and with humility. Where the world can be motivated by pride, we must be motivated by humility. Jesus' humility today is on full display. We see a man that has proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, to be God himself, to be the Savior of the world, to be the Lamb of God. We see a man named Jesus who endures a great tragedy and trial at the hands of Judas, a friend turned foe, the heel of all of history, that Jesus is standing there on the Garden of Gethsemane, innocent of any wrong, and despite it all, his friend named Judas sells him out for a $1,000, and Jesus handles it all with humility. The question I have this morning is not just how Jesus handles the trial, but what does it prove? How Jesus handles the trial of Judas and his arrest and the trial before honest. what does it prove about him, the person? John 18. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 18. Today we will kind of... Do a little bit of a survey of verses 1 through 24. I'm not going to take every verse and unpack it verse by verse and word by word because we would never get to lunch on time today if that happened. Um, But this, this, this past Tuesday night, kind of on a rabbit note as you kind of turn to John chapter 18, we had our monthly elder and deacon meeting this past Tuesday night. And by the way, if you serve there, thank you. They're great men. I say that every month, and they really are. They're great men. Thank you to their families and their spouses for letting us borrow them for a month or for a night of the week. But I told the elders this last Tuesday night that I plan I plan to finish the Gospel of John. Believe it or not, I'm actually going to finish this thing, okay? I'm going to finish the Gospel of John by mid-May. And one of them joked, what, what do you mean, May 2025? And, and I... I I know I've spent a lot of time in this book And I know we've been in it for a very, very long time And this book has presented some challenges as a preacher It's been one of the more difficult books I have preached But what I want to do To kind of get us to finish Kind of in mid-May or late May The Gospel of John Really every story that is left in the Gospel of John They're all pretty familiar you know, we, we, we probably know what happens in John chapter 18 with Judas, that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. We, we know these things. So, really, what I want to do is something a little bit different. I don't want to just see the story, unpack it, but I want to really answer the question even more. How, what is the importance of the story? Theologically, why did Jesus have to die? Theologically, why did Jesus have to resurrect? Theologically, Why did Jesus talk to his disciples to tend his sheep? So that is kind of where we're going to go for the next few weeks. And as we enter into John chapter 18, as I mentioned, we are at the rest of Jesus. And kind of what I want to do is I want to paint us a picture of where we are in the gospel of John. Because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. But I also want us to kind of remember the context. As my father-in-law, who preached last week, says, what the repetition is theological glue. So where are we in the story of the Gospel of John? If you know the the chronological outline, there's only two outlines you can have. There's a chronological outline, and then there's a thematic one. Sorry. The chronological outline breaks into three main parts. You have eternity past, then you have three years, and then you have three weeks. But then the thematic outline of the Gospel of John, if you take John chapter 20, verse 31, which is the reason why this whole book was written, These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. That all of the stories in the Gospel of John were written for that one purpose. So thematically speaking, it really also breaks down into five. That John 1, Jesus claims to be the Son of God in Christ. John 1 through 4, Jesus proves he is the Christ. John 5 through 12, Jesus proves he is the Son of God. John 13 through 21 is really Jesus' fulfillment as the Christ and the Son of God. But more narrowly, where are we? When we enter into John chapter 13, we think that those events, oftentimes, mistakenly, they took place over a a three-year period. But as you probably remember, that in John chapter 13, through the really through the end of chapter 20, I believe off the top of my head, that that time period really only happened within a matter of 24 hours to 48 hours. So John 13 happened right before we enter into John chapter 18 and the arrest of Jesus. So where are we? Jesus just got done. Talking in the upper room to his disciples, John 13 through 16, and then he prayed. In John chapter 17, he prayed for three different groups of people, if you remember that. He kind of prayed for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prayed for his disciples in 6 through 19. And then he prayed for us. Those disciples of his disciples. And what did he pray for us? He prayed one thing for us, that we may be one, that we would be united, example through the very nature of God Himself. And what's the only way for us to be united, friends? is by selflessness. You know, setting ourselves aside and valuing Him and we over me. That's the only way. And I will say, if the elder meetings themselves are any indication of the unity that is in this church, then we are the most united we have ever been, in my humble opinion. I've been here for almost 30 years, and I see the deference and the unity that we have on that board in their wonderful meetings. Jesus prays that we would be one. And then we come into John chapter 18. And then we see in John 18, if you have your text, we see three different pieces to this particular story, verses 1 through 24. We see the setting in verses 1 through 3. We see the arrest in 4 through 11. And we see the trial in verses 12 through 24. But I, but I, right before I'm going to slam the brakes. I know I've been doing that a lot this morning. I'm kind of going to go, okay. But before we dive in, I want you to read this story. As somebody that just picked up the scroll of the Gospel of John and is reading this letter for the very first time. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. A first time reader of the Gospel of John. What are they needing? What are they looking for at this exact moment in John chapter 18? They are saying in the back of their mind, prove it. Jesus Christ Prove." Who you say you are. Think about all of the claims that Jesus has made to this point. It's pretty outrageous stuff. He has proclaimed Himself to be Egoemi, to be God Himself. Yahweh, the Most High. I am who I am. He has proclaimed Himself to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ. All these things. If I am a reader in the Gospel of John for the very first time, I am saying in the back of my mind, prove it. Beyond of shadow, prove who you say you are, and he does. Notice the text with me. Notice the setting of the story in verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples of the ravine of Kindred. Notice that. Where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples, Judas, then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests, and the Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Okay, notice that scene with me. Now, I want you to notice three different pieces of the setting. So you have the setting, verses 1 through 3. You have the arrest in 4 through 11. And you have the trial, the first one mentioned in John, in verses 12 through 24. Notice the setting. What does it say first? It says that his disciples went over the ravine of the kindred. What in the world is that thing? The Kindred Valley is a small valley. I mean, we think of valleys like Colorado, okay? That's how I picture a valley, but this is not. It's more like a kind of like a dip in the in the land, okay? Between the old city and the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is only a couple hundred feet above the valley valley floor itself, so it's kind of a small, not real hilly but moving on moving on so the kindred valley the ravine of kindred is a dry riverbed that separates the old city of jerusalem from the mount of olives but i want you to notice think about the irony mentioned in verse 1 when his disciples when jesus had spoken these things he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the kindred what's the irony this is the exact reversal of palm sunday Think about that, that on Palm Sunday, Jesus on the Mount of Olives, he rides down the Mount of Olives on a colt a donkey into the gate, right? And what is he proclaiming himself to be in John chapter 12 in the Palm Sunday? He's proclaiming himself to be king. And then here, Jesus does the complete opposite. He goes out the same gate. He entered in, he goes out the same gate, goes up the Mount of Olives, and there he stands on the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed by Judas. What is Jesus saying There. Jesus is saying in John chapter twelve that he is king over Israel, and here when him he goes up to the Mount of Olives and waits for his inevitable arrest, he is proclaiming himself to be the savior of the world. Notice setting number two in verse two. Now Judas also who is betraying him knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Notice that. Judas knew the place. What does that tell you? That Judas spent so much time with Jesus that he can predict his exact location that night. That Judas has spent so much time with the Savior of the world, the Son of God, that he would know exactly where he is. That Judas is so close he can predict Jesus' exact movements. Yet Judas, for a time, values 30 pieces of silver more than his friendship with the Savior. He sells Jesus out for a $1,000 dollars. Now, I know that may sound like a lot, but if you think about the grand scheme of things, he's known Jesus for three years, and he sells him out for a thousand bucks. I'm going to say something real practical for just a second. Um, Do not let money blind you. Judas here... Is blinded by disappointment and his bitterness. But let me just say something else. I think he's also blinded by just selling out for 30 pieces of silver. I've seen people, Christians, people in this world that are blinded by money. And they forgo all of their relationships in their life for it. Be careful with that. Then notice setting number three. Who's with Judas? He has a Roman cohort and officers. And notice what they have with them. They have three things. Lanterns, torches, and weapons what does that tell you that they are there for a violent cause to arrest Jesus and just in case a suspect resists the soldiers are ready to wield their swords so we see the setting we see the arrest now how do you it's not really mentioned here but how does Judas betray the son of god he betrays him with a kiss now in the original language that word the kind of the word that describes Judas's kiss is one of deep affection and friendship what does that tell you it shows Judas's sinister nature. That Judas is so blinded by greed and disappointment that the son of perdition lays his trap and Jesus is arrested and he sits there knowing all things, knowing what is about to happen and he still is arrested. He still endures the cross before him. And then what happens? At the arrest, it says in, about Peter, Peter wheels out his sword. He cuts off a man's ear That must have been a bad day for that guy. Um, Unfortunately, Jesus heals him. And then the disciples essentially run away, and one of them, in another account, runs away completely naked. I would imagine that would be an interesting night to see. So you see the setting, the arrest, and then the trials. Jesus goes before honest the chief priest, as it says. I'll talk about that here in just a moment. He goes before this man, and he is accused of wrong. And Jesus' proof that he is a true messenger and the disciples that he poured into is one of the reasons why he proves his claim. And then what is Honest's goal? Honest's goal is to absolutely kill Jesus. Get him off face. Get him out of the way. Put him to death and let this rioter, in their opinion, be killed. But I want you to think about what's really... Okay, I'm going to paint a scene for you, okay? Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, okay? This is... Thursday night, Friday, wee hours of Friday morning. Okay, what happens in the next 24 hours? Jesus is arrested, He is tried, and He is executed in 24 hours. Think about that in modern day. Okay, you, you get arrested one day, and then you're tried, and then, oh, by the way, there's an electric chair in the courtroom for you. Okay, that's kind of what happens here. Jesus, within 24 hours, is arrested, he is tried, and he is executed. We think that this has happened a long way apart, but it really hasn't. It's all very compact. That is the story. Now we have to answer the question, why is this story important? The story, and then why is it important? That's really the question I want to answer today. In order to really see why the story is important, we must see the characters. Who is the first main real character in this chapter? You see in verse 2, now Judas also who was betraying. Who was Judas? Let, Let me ask you a question. What does Judas see? Judas sees only anger. He sees only bitterness. Judas, for three years, has followed a man named Jesus, who he hoped would be the Messiah to establish an earthly kingdom. Judas, for three years, has followed Jesus, and he has walked away, in a sense, with absolutely nothing. No position, no money, no prize, no glory. Judas is the treasurer of the twelve. He is hoping that when Jesus establishes the earthly kingdom, that Judas will become the treasurer over it all, really becoming the second most powerful man in the kingdom. So Judas, at this moment, is blinded by hate and disappointment. Judas is so blinded by bitterness, stemming from disappointment, that he hates Jesus enough to sell him out for a thousand dollars. Judas' disappointment with God leads to a dismissal of truth coupled with the determinations of the enemy brings forth death. Character number two is a man named Anas, the judge over trial one, if you notice him. Who is this guy? It says that, number one, he is the father-in-law of the chief priest Caiaphas, But actually, Anas is actually prosecuting the disciples in the book of Acts. So there's a little bit of confusion. Okay, who really is the chief priest? And is it Caiaphas or Anas? So what a lot of scholars say is that Anas is the spiritual, in a sense, chief priest. And then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the pontiff recognized by the Roman government. What is... What is blinding Honest? What is blind Caiaphas? What is blinding the people that accuse Jesus of wrong? But particularly, what is blinding the Pharisees and the chief priests? They are blinded by pride. Honest doesn't want to see the truth. Because if he really did, he would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and is Yahweh himself. Honest really doesn't want to see it. He would rather be right than to accept what is true. He would rather be destiny of his own dominion than to surrender to Jesus as Lord of his life. Let me just say something real quick. Um, pride blinds many to the truth of Jesus Christ. So many times I've seen people over the years, they don't really want to accept Jesus. They don't want to receive Jesus. They don't want to follow him because he, then he would be Lord of their life. Listen. Some of you here today, I would imagine that pride is blinding you to the truth. Whether you think so or not, whether you be captain of your own ship or not, Jesus is truth. He is real. He is your Savior and he is your Lord. So then you see the Roman guards happening in verse 4 through 6. Character number 3 are the Roman guards. Now uh, talk about innocent bystanders in this particular drama In the climax of human history And the greatest heel in all of the literature named Judas Is finding the Son of God on top of the Garden of Gethsemane And these poor Roman soldiers and soldiers from the chief priests Are kind of stuck in the middle They're robots But naivety to the truth does not excuse it But how do the soldiers react? Do you notice that? Verse 4, they. verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, so Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. Why? Because he is God. Went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They said, verse 5, They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. And then those verse 6. So when he said to them, "I am He," they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, what does that mean? That the Roman soldiers and the the officers of the chief priests, for that moment in time, fall before Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, "Kind of says, what are you doing? Take me away." Why? Why do they bow before him? What does he say? Verse five. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, "I am He." Jesus here proclaims himself to be Yahweh, to be God. I am who I am. In the original language, it says, Egoemi. If you think about all of the claims to this point, what does Jesus said? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. What are some of the other ones? I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, again, he proclaims his deity at a very difficult time. Jesus does not hide his deity, he does not excuse it, but he tells it to these men and they fall before him. Character number four is Peter. Uh, you know, um, Peter gets a bad rap. Um, amen? Okay, right. Okay, I guess best amen I got all morning, thank you. Uh, Peter gets a bad rap, he really does, because he's the only one that actually got out of the boat, right? Anyways, sorry. Um, and think about Peter for just a second What does it say in the other gospel accounts in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane What does it say about Peter and the other disciples It says what? That they fell asleep Now that's their fault Jesus told them to stay awake and to pray But Peter fell asleep So just imagine with me You, you're, you don't know really what's going on Peter doesn't have any idea he is falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, what does he wake up to? He wakes up to Roman soldiers, officers of the chief priests, to have lanterns, torches, and swords. Let me ask you a question. That's a terrible nightmare to wake up to. Okay. How how does Jesus how does Peter respond? The only way probably some of us would. I mean, Peter hasn't had his shower and his cup of coffee. Is anybody else not in their right mind before they have that? This guy. I gotta have both. Peter doesn't know what's going on. He just wakes up in a big fog, and all of a sudden he sees a guys with swords and torches. And what does he do? He does what we would do. He took took out a sword and he cuts a guy's ear off. <laughs> if y'all if y'all wake up that grumpy, please uh, <laughs> stay away from me. Okay. Uh, so in Peter's haste, he cuts off this guy's ear, and then Peter's story continues in this narrative. I want you to think about how Peter feels. After he cuts off the guy's ear and after he runs away, what is Peter feeling? Because then he goes and he denies, he's recognized three different times. He's recognized by a young girl and he denies it. He's recognized by soldiers and he denies it. And then he's recognized by somebody that saw him cut off a dude's ear that night. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Then Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. This is kind of when my five-year-old, you know, hurts my three-year-old. They said, I don't know what happened. That's what happens here. Peter denies, but Why? Peter denies his Savior because he feels a sense of hopelessness. That the person he has penned his eternal future on, the person he has penned his position in the kingdom is arrested and tried and is about to be killed on a cross. Peter, in a sense, is hopeless. But, friends, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, is never hopeless No matter how disappointed you are, no matter the darkness of the valley, no matter the fire that creeps up upon your doorstep, we always have hope. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty. If you try to find hope in this world, you will be disappointed. Amen? Our hope is not here. It's him. And then you see character number six, and character, excuse me, character number five. And character number five is not in the text explicitly, but character number five is the Father. Is the Father, that on the heels of Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, the Father sees his Son suffer for the sins of the world to pay for them in full. And despite the pain of seeing his only begotten Son, he allows him to go to the cross Isaiah 53 but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief as a result of the anguish of his souls he will see it and be satisfied for by knowledge by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear the iniquities of us all. the father is here although he's not mentioned and he lets his son endure to pay for the sins of the world. there's two more characters. Character number six is, of course, the man himself is Jesus. And what does it say in verse four? So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to be in the garden. His best friend, turned foe, is going to find him and arrest him. Let me just ask you the question, uh people in the room if you knew somebody was coming to your house tonight to kill you what would you do I'm not trying to be morbid you would probably pack heat or you would run away okay what does he do here knowing all things he is god himself he sees what's about to happen he has the opportunity it says in a different gospel account he could call upon the hosts of angels he says 12 legions of angels to rescue him, but he doesn't why Hebrews 12. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus stayed to be arrested, knowing he would be hung on a tree. He stayed knowing Peter would deny him. He stayed to be arrested in the garden, knowing that he would be left completely alone, and he stayed humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is humble. We see the story, but why is the story important? What does Jesus' humility do? We figure that one out when we figure out character number eight. Who is the missing character in this story? I'm going to say that missing character that we do not see in the pages are the readers, the readers, us today. Imagine with me, like I've already mentioned to you, imagine you, you did not grow up in church. Imagine this is a brand new story to you. Imagine seeing it for the very first time. See how they see it. How does a new believer, how does one that's not sure about Jesus, how do they see this event? They're saying in the back of their mind, okay, Jesus, you've made some outrageous claims in chapters 1 through 17. Now prove it to me. And Jesus does. He proves that he's the son of God by predicting Peter's three denials. Jesus proves he is the Messiah by fulfilling prophecy. And Jesus proves he is the savior of the world by enduring the arrest and the cross. If you have your notes, claim number one is John 5, 3. Jesus' humility in the face of accusation proved his claim that he serves the Father. Serves the Father is that first blank. He said that over and over and over again. The reason the Gospel of John is a difficult book to preach is because it repeats itself all the time. Okay, I've already heard that, Byron. Please move on. Okay, that's probably, I've gotten at least one of those thoughts, I'm sure, in the last... 10 years that i've been preaching this book um move on jesus humility proves he serves the father claim number two john thirteen thirty eight. jesus proves his claim to be the son of god by predicting peter's exact denial he proves his claim to be the son of god by predicting peter's exact denial Zechariah 11.12, so the first blank is serve, second one is son of God, claim number three is Zechariah 11.12, Jesus' humility in the face of accusation proved his claim to be the Messiah by fulfilling prophecy, to be the Messiah, there are many predictions that are fulfilled unbeknownst to Judas, in this particular passage, one out of Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, which is seen here. Claim number four is Isaiah 53, verse 7. Jesus' humility in the midst of accusation proves his claim to be the savior of the world. There is a direct correlation. When I, when I read John 18, I can't help but see the correlation between him and the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Claim number five, John 18, 14. Jesus' humility in the face of accusation proved that he was sufficient. He was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. But there's a sixth claim that I didn't mention, that I didn't have in my notes, and I figured this one out last night. Okay, so that's why you don't have it in your note sheet. What else does Jesus prove he is? Through Jesus' humility, Jesus proves to be God. God. Why do I say that? What does he say three times in this text? He says, Ego Amy, I am. And what is the response of the Roman soldiers? They fall before him. Why? Because they understand what Jesus is saying. There are people in this culture that say that Jesus has never proclaimed to be God. And they have clearly not read the Gospel of John. It is everywhere. Jesus proves that he is God himself by the claims he makes in John chapter 18. Jesus' humility in trials proves his claims that he is God, Messiah, and Savior. I'm going to try to drag that with me, and I'm going to put it into 21st century context. Do not be fooled. Um, If you live long enough, you will experience suffering. Amen? Amen? You will experience trials. But the difference we have is, number one, that we have hope of the promise of eternal life and the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. But then number two, what we have, when we, should, when we have trials, we should take it humbly, that we should be humble in trials just like our Savior is here to prove our claims to the cross. For my application, I'm going to wrap it up here soon. Uh, for my application today, it's really it's really quite simple To follow the example of Christ We see him prove himself With his humility He proves his claims to the cross To be sufficient to pay for the sins of the world He proves himself to be the Messiah The anointed one out of the Old Testament He proves himself to be Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 The promised one to come The seed of the woman He proves himself And he he proves it again and again and again and again Throughout the rest of the Gospel of John This is just the first scene so to speak but he gives us an example to follow, that we should be humble. We should not live with hubris or pride or just merely self-reliance. I think we should be humble and follow the Lord. The application number two, as I have on your notes, is just to recognize reality. It's to fall on your face before him. It's to be the rowing cohorts, to be the officers that you see in Romans chapter 18. That they, despite their background, think about what they believe. If they are religious, they are polytheistic. They believe in many gods. And then all of a sudden, they see this one guy named Jesus. And all he has to say is ego Amy, And they fall before him. They see the truth. They see reality. That Jesus is not just some guy that is causing a bunch of problems to Pilate and the chief priests. But that he is the savior of the world and God himself. Some of you here today, I don't, know, I don't know some of the people, we have new people that come here every week and I really don't know. But I would imagine here today that there are people that really don't want Jesus. They don't really see him as real. They don't really see him as for them. They don't really see him, that, that they don't really... Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, Jesus is real, he is truth, he is savior and he is your lord. The question I have is that will you pull down the blinders of pride to see the truth? Because Jesus died for you. He died and rose again. He paid for your sin in full. He gives you eternal life that you only open by faith when you receive him and you worship him as Lord and Savior of your life. The question I have, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of your life, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? He is real. I have, let me just say something real quick. I have been a Christian a long time, uh, almost 30 years. I've been preaching the scripture for half of it, quite literally. Um, I've been teaching and preaching, and I am convinced more today than ever that Jesus Christ, the Savior that we see in scripture, is true. He is real. He is the Savior of the world, and he gives you the opportunity to believe. The question is, will you surrender? Will you receive? Will you pull down the blinders of pride and receive him as Lord of your life? Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, this story is full it's, it's magnificent in ways in many ways uh, Lord I, just, I pray for two things Lord that we would learn from Christ's example that we would be humble in the midst of all the trials of life so that we can prove our claim to be a Christian But Lord I pray for those that are here today that are blind to the truth that your Holy Spirit would take down those shades And let them see reality, that you are real, that you are true, that you are Savior of the world, and that you are their Lord. I uh, thank you for today, and we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.